We're starting this morning an 11-week series through the book of James. Mark Twain said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. You ever feel that way? It ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. And James is a very clear, direct, in-your-face, practical letter. This short book contains 50 imperatives, 50 commands. Most of them are very clear and direct. And so what that means for us is that the challenge before our church in the next 11 weeks is not so much understanding James. James is pretty clear. It's doing what James is instructing us to do. And my feeling is is that the next 11 weeks, if you tune in, every now and then, like Mark Twain, James is going to bother you. Because he's going to say something that you're not going to be thrilled to hear, but it's important for us to um, open up our hearts to consider. James, what do we know about James? Uh, James was a leader in the early church. Most of what we know about this man is from the book of Acts, which contains the history of the early church. Here's just some quick context for you. James uh, was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on the disciples. James was the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he led the Jerusalem council when they gathered the believers and the disciples together to settle some early church conflict. In Acts 15, we learn that James was wise. He was theologically astute. James was a peacemaker. He, um, he became known as James the Just because of what a fair person he was, because of how much of a peacemaker he was. Uh, and James actually... <coughs> Even though when we tend to think of leaders in the early church, we think of Peter and Paul, there are times, it seems, in history of the early church that James really overshadowed both of those men in his leadership. Now, this letter that James wrote was most likely written in the mid to late 40s 40s AD, which means it's the earliest letter we have. James wrote this before Paul wrote any of his letters. And so what we're going to see is that James' primary theme in this book is living out your faith. It's a little less talk a little more action. It's putting feet to your faith. It's saying stop talking about what you believe and actually do something. Because how many of you have learned people can say a lot of things, but their actions actually reveal what they really believe and who they really are. And that's what James challenges us with. So this morning we're going to read the first 18 verses of James chapter 1. This is a little longer passage than we often read together on Sunday mornings, but, I, but it's, it's important for us to get all of this in order to make sense of what he's saying to us. So it starts like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He's writing to the Jewish believers who are scattered now all over the known world. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. He's speaking about maturity, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, it seems like James is going a lot of different directions. Seems like he's bringing a lot of different things up, but actually what we're going to learn is James is really pretty focused on one thing. And what he's really focused on is trials, the trials that we encounter in our lives, the difficulties, the circumstances that don't go our way. In order for us to make sense of these 18 verses, we're going to answer three questions together this morning. It's pretty simple, I think. The first one is this. What is James asking us to do? Number two, why don't we do it? And number three, how can we do it? Okay, very, very simple outline this morning. What's James asking us to do? Why don't we do it? How can we do it? All right, so first, what is James asking of us? What's he commanding us? What is he teaching us to do? And I have to be honest, what he's asking us to do here is so counterintuitive. It's so against the grain. It's so against our nature because essentially what he's saying is, hey, when things don't go your way, be happy. When trials come, find joy in your trials. And is that in our nature? Is that the way we're wired? No. When trials come, we don't find joy. We might get through it, but we wouldn't say it's a joyful process. I remember when I was young, my first job was delivering the Herald Journal. I delivered newspapers in Bayberry. And back then, almost everybody on the block got the Sunday morning paper. That was just kind of like the thing. You all got the Sunday morning paper. And the way it would work was that the middle of the Sunday morning paper, the inserts, the coupons and the ads and the real estate and the comics, they came to my house actually on Thursday. And then Sunday morning, they would deliver the rest of the paper, and I would put them together, and then I would go around a couple streets, and I would deliver the Herald Journal to all these different homes. And I remember getting those inserts on Thursdays, and the first thing I'd do is I would grab the comics, because I loved the comics. And I felt special, because I had them on Thursday, and everybody else had to wait till Sunday. And so I'm reading the comics, and I remember at the very bottom of the front page of the comics, every Sunday was this thing called Magic Eye. You know what I'm talking about, the magic eye? I got a picture for you. And the magic eye was like this 3D thing that you're supposed to look at it, and you're supposed to see some sort of image. How many of you right now can see something? You see something beyond, right? So some people can see there's lines, I think, in this one. But I, don't, I can't see these. I can never see them. And so this was like the bane of my existence when I was growing up. Like, I, I was convinced that everybody was pulling a joke on me. Like, there's nothing there. And then all my friends would give me advice. I'm like, well, here's what you got to do. You got to try this and you got to try that. And I remember them saying, you got to put it really close to your nose. Start it up close and then slowly back it away. And I'm thinking, you just want me to look like an idiot. Like, that's, that's the only reason you want me to do this. And I was convinced, like, man, this must be something that only people who don't believe in Jesus can see. Because I can't, I can't see this stuff. And uh, I remember one of my friends one time gave me the advice. And he said, listen, here's what you got to do. Don't look at it, look through it. Don't look at it, look through it, and then you'll see it. 
What, what James is saying here to the Jewish believers who are scattered in suffering and enduring many trials is he's saying when you encounter trials, don't look at them. Look through them. Look through your trials, not at them. Don't hear, now, let me just say, this, this is way beyond, because you might think, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, so positive thinking. No, no, no. This is different than positive thinking. This is way beyond positive thinking. James is not saying, Christians, you should approach trials better than everyone else does. James is saying, Christians, you should approach trials radically different than everyone else does. And we'll explain more why as we get into this message. Don't look at your circumstances. Look through them. Don't use all your energy and all of your strength. And this is not positive thinking. This is an inner confidence that's grounded in the, in the goodness of God, the sovereign work of God, and the fact that God is working all things out for our good. Having inner confidence that helps us to look through our circumstances, through our trials, through, not around them. We don't ignore them. We don't put our head in the sand. We don't pretend that life is great, right? That's not what it means to be a Christian, we see them, but we don't stop at them. We look through them. Now, what do we look through them to? Three things. Number one, you got to look through your trials to see what they're actually doing for you. What your trials are accomplishing in you. Think back the last 10 years of your life. Think about the seasons of your life when you grew the most, when you matured the most, when you developed the most character when you learn the most about yourself and about life and about God, I would guess those are not easy times. Those are challenging times. But it's the challenging times, it's the trials that if we're not defined and destroyed by them, they actually have the power to strengthen us and grow us. And we can emerge from our trials with joy intact and with strength in our hearts because we've seen God's faithfulness to bring us through it, but he's also used those trials to create character. You know, you don't get character unless you go through stuff. If life is always easy, you don't develop character, but it's the challenges that develop that character in us that re result in maturity and strength. I remember my, my 11-year-old, when she was five, we were talking one time, she was just starting soccer and piano, and I remember her saying to me, she was in the back of the car and I was driving, she goes, it's just not fair. I said, what's not fair? She goes, it's just not fair that I'm, you gotta work at stuff. <laughs> I was like, you're my daughter, you're my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not fair that you gotta, that you're not, she goes, it's just not, it's just not fair that I'm not just automatically great at that. I'm like, that would be nice. But with the exception of prodigies, nobody is automatically great at anything. Think about what you're best at in your life, whether it's what you do at work, whether it's the instrument you play, whether it's art, whether it's writing, whatever it is. You worked at it. You put in, see, trials and suffering and struggle, we can look through them because they actually can be our friend because they can help us grow and accomplish things in us. The second thing, when we look through our trials, you know what else we look at? We look through our trials and we see every trial is an opportunity to become like Jesus, to identify with Christ and his suffering. If we didn't have a God who came and suffered, then that wouldn't make any sense, but we do. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, some of the early followers of Jesus, right after he had left them, uh, they're spreading the good news about Jesus, died, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven. They're going around, and they're telling everybody, and the council doesn't like it, and so they arrest him, and they throw him in jail, and they bring him for the council, and they're accusing him of all sorts of things, and then they send him out. In Acts 5.41, it says that these men left the presence of the council. Look what they were doing, rejoicing, joy, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Worthy. Now, talk about counterintuitive. Nobody wants to be considered, no one wants to suffer. But in our suffering, 
there's actually something about suffering that forms us more into the image of Christ. And we can identify more with his suffering because nobody suffered like Jesus suffered. But then the other reason why we can look through our trials is because according to what James says here, he says the one who perseveres and endures to the end will receive from God the crown of life. That speaks of the end of time. That someday there is a glorious future that awaits us. When God, the God that we see in the book of Revelation, who sits on his throne and says, behold, I'll make all things new. I'll restore everything. My favorite children's book says it this way, all the sad things will come untrue. And because that day is coming, we don't have to stop just looking at our trials, but we can look through them. And at this point in the text, did you notice that James brings in the topic of wisdom? And it feels like a shift because what does wisdom have to do with trials? But actually, it's very important for us to understand that James is saying, if you're going to endure trials and see joy in them, you got to have wisdom. You can't do it without wisdom. Now, when we think of wisdom, maybe you think of cracking open a fortune cookie and getting like a little, like a, a, a little proverb. Or maybe you think of wisdom as a, a clever tweet or, or, or just something that you might, you might hear somebody say. But wisdom in the Bible, it's more than special revelation. It's more than theoretical insights. It's more than intellectualism. It's more than proverbs. It's more than street smarts. You know, when I study this, I didn't know this, but I was surprised to learn this, that when James talks about wisdom here in James chapter 1, what he's talking about is that wisdom is the quality that helps somebody endure terrible times in a way that maintains the character of Jesus within them. Did I say that clearly? Let me try again. Wisdom is the quality within us that allows us to endure trials without losing the Christ-likeness that he's creating within us. And we can't do it without wisdom. You, You ever get squeezed, the pressure ever on in life, family, work, relationships, What comes out? Wisdom helps us endure those things in such a way that the ethic of Jesus, things like justice, love, and peace, survive even when we are going through trials. Wisdom, by the way, also helps us know the difference. This is really important. This will help some of you. The difference between testing and tempting. Did you see what James said in there? God does test us. There are tests that God allows us to go through because he's growing us. When a teacher gives a student a test, is it to punish them? You may feel that way sometimes. I'm a, I, I teach a class, an online class for a university in, in Pennsylvania, and I give my students tests regularly. Why? Because I want to see what they know. I want to challenge them. I want to cause them to grow, right? The test is for our good. God will test us. He will allow us to go through tests to develop character in us. But James makes it clear, God never tempts us to sin. God cannot be tempted by sin. He does not tempt us to sin. God is not the source of evil. So when we go through our trials, if there's a testing element to our trials, it may be the very work of God in our lives. But we can never say that God led us into sin or that he tempted us, and wisdom helps us know that. Now, let me wrap this up, and we'll get to our next point. What does this all mean? It means this. You can be educated. You can have a lot of degrees. You can be an intellectual. You can be well-read. You can listen to all the podcasts out there. You can be full of life experience. You can be street smart. But what James is saying here is, you still may not be wise because of how you respond to trials and who you blame when the trial comes. It's a sign of wisdom, the way we respond to our trials and the fact that we don't blame God and others always for our trials. Trials in life, I think this is true, trials in life will either refine you or they will ruin you. You know, the same fire that can strengthen metal can also tear apart a home, right? Trials are the same way. Trials will either refine you 
or ruin you. The only difference is are you going to stop at looking at them or by God's grace can you look through them so that trials in life don't just work against you, they actually work for you. Okay? So that's what James is asking us to do, first point. He's asking us to endure trials in a way that we don't lose our joy. Easier said than done, which is, brings us to our second point. Why don't we do it? Why do trials steal our joy? Why do they have so much power over us? In verse 6, he gives us the answer. He says, The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Or you could say she is a double-minded woman, unstable in all her ways. This word double-minded is an important word for us to understand. When James says, talks about being double-minded, it's deeper than it sounds. It's not just having two different opinions on the same matter. Double-minded here actually speaks of a heart that is split in its allegiances, in its loyalty, in its love. A heart that gives some of its love to God and some of its love to something else. It's trusting in something else, in place of Jesus or in addition to Jesus. And what James is teaching us here is that when your heart is split that way, and some of your trust goes to God, and some of your trust goes to wealth, or some of your trust goes to a relationship, or some of your trust goes to a career path, or some of your trust goes to your bank account, or your ability to be in control. When your heart is split in that way, what James is saying actually is that the foundation of your life won't stand. It's unstable. Uh, worshiping false gods make you unstable. The very foundation of your life, everything that you're building your life on is unstable. And, and actually, trials have a way of revealing this. Like a month ago, Erin called me and she said, hey, uh, one, one part of our fence fell over. It was a super windy, I don't know if you remember, it was one of these really strong, windy days. And we got a backyard fence made up of lots of um, individual panels that are all connected. And she goes, it, it blew over, it fell over. And I was like, all right, I mean, I'll come home. I can't do anything about it because I don't have a single handy bone in my body, but I'll come home and, and we can commiserate together. And, um, but she said, no, no, don't worry. Um, our neighbor actually, he propped it back up and he kind of secured it. I think it'll be okay for a little while. But she said, when, when you come home, I want to I share with you what he shared with me about why it happened. And so I come home and we go out and look and come to find out um, the back of our house, the sump pump comes out of the back of our house, like many of your houses, right, to keep your basement from getting wet. Uh, but we didn't direct the, the rest of the, uh, the rest of the pump, the rest of the, what's that word? Um, the rest of the, what? Pipe. See, I can't, no handy bone in my body. I don't even have the vocabulary. The rest of the pipe, we didn't direct it where we should have, which was out the back of our yard into this little valley. We, and it was just directing off to the side of our house, and what's happening is all, the sub-pump, which is constantly working this time of the year, was just pumping water right to the base of this fence post. And you know, you know what that means, that the ground was getting soft and the wood was rotting away. So we had this problem for a long time, but it was this strong wind that exposed it. And here's the thing about trials. I don't think they actually create um, instability in your life as much as they reveal the instabilities in your life. I don't think they're so much the source of your problems as much as they have a way of revealing what your real problem is. But when the wind's not blowing, we don't notice because there's nothing knocking the fence over. And James is saying here that there's a real danger. And the reason why we don't see trials and we can't look through them and we can't find the joy in them is ultimately because of the foundation of our life is built on the wrong thing. And our hearts are divided. We're double-minded and we're unstable. And we give our allegiances 
our heart's allegiance to the wrong thing. Now, there's a verse here. I think it'll be on the screen for you, verse 14 that he said. This is going to really help us make sense of this. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's a process here, right? Desire gives birth to sin. Sin grows up and gives birth, in a sense, to death. Desire, sin, death. And that Greek word desire <laughs> is the Greek word epithemia. And it's a really interesting word because that, what makes that desire evil what makes it give birth to sin is not the object of the desire, it's not what it wants, it's the amount of the desire. It's how strong the desire is. It's a controlling desire. It's a compelling desire. It's an obsessive desire. So here's what James is teaching us about sin. Sin is not always the result of you and I wanting bad things. Sin is often the result of you and I wanting too much the good things of life. It's an over-desire for things that are okay, but not ultimate. Good, but not God. Like a family. Like health. Like wealth. Like stability. Like security. Uh, like a good job. Are those all good things? Nothing inherently evil or wrong with any of them, right? But what about when, we, what about when it has our greatest allegiance, our greatest desire? an over-controlling desire for anything. These are the things that we turn to. Now, here's why this is so important. Because when you hit a trial, when you and I hit trials, we, we always turn to something, right? The things we turn to are our deepest allegiances. And here's the danger, and here's why we don't get this right. The things we turn to, hoping they will save us, are the very things that we're losing in the trial. So then where do you turn? When the thing that you turn to to save you is the thing that you've lost because of the trial or the sorrow or the suffering, then there's no way forward. There's no joy. Bruce Springsteen has a song called Devils in Dust. He says it this way. I think he says it well in the course of his song. He says, I got God on my side. I'm just trying to survive. Now listen to this line. It's brilliant. What if what you do to survive kills the things you love? What if what you do to survive, what if you're doing just to keep moving forward is actually killing the things that matter most? He goes on to say in this course, fear is a powerful thing. It can turn your heart black. You can trust. It will take your God-filled soul and fill it with devils and dust. I remember hearing that course and being like, whoa. You know, he's not a believer, I don't think. But he's got something there. That's a powerful truth. When we are enslaved to fear and we'll do anything to survive, we will destroy things that matter most in our need to survive. And then what happens is we take our soul that was created to be filled with God and we fill it up with devils and dust, with darkness in ourself. And when trials, listen, when trials become your source of your identity, then you become one of two things. You're either a victim or you're a vindicator, Right? If trials are the source of your identity, then either you're a victim, you've suffered, or you're a vindicator, you're going to get everyone back who made you suffer. You'll be defined by your pain, or you'll be defined by your ability to erase or avenge your pain. And as long as I insist on being one of the other, victim or vindicator, I cannot look through my trial to see joy. Now, 
let me, let me talk specifically about what James is, is saying here, okay? And this is going to really help us bring this home because I know it's still a little theoretical. I want to make it very practical right now. I think this is going to be helpful. James is writing to people, Jewish believers, scattered in a Gentile world that actually isn't for them. The systems in their, where they live are not really um, conducive to their success in many ways. And so James is writing to a church that is struggling with poverty, there are a lot of poor believers who are not just experiencing personal poverty because of their choices, but because they're part of a financial system that's been set in place to oppress them and keep them down, okay? You're going to find this tension in the book of James, that James addresses personal sin and systemic sin. He doesn't get sucked into that binary political party thing that we're sucked into right now in America where one side of the aisle says it's personal responsibility and the other side of the aisle says it's a systemic issue. James in the Bible consistently says it's both. It's all of that, and we got to care about both of those types of issues, right? That's the way James approaches this. You're going to really see this in the next couple chapters. What James is saying here is some of you are suffering and you're enduring trials because you're in poverty because of the way that you live, but some of you are suffering poverty because you're living in places where the financial systems and the people who have power financially have set up the structures to keep you down. I'm reading a book right now called Flash Boys. Uh, a, a couple in our church gave it to me as a gift for Christmas. And Flash Boys is a, a look at, at Wall Street, the stock market, and uh, at a time when what were known as high-frequency traders had figured out how to work the stock market because they could trade just milliseconds faster than everybody else. But in those milliseconds, they were making billions of dollars. And they were working the system so that the high-frequency traders were getting unbelievably rich, even at the expense of the big banks who were suffering. But guess who else gets affected by it? You and me. It trickles all the way down. If you got a retirement account, if you got a bank account, it affected all of us. I'm reading this book. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I can't, I can't believe that this was happening. And what happened still in our world today was happening back then. And so James is addressing this, and he's trying to help them. And here's how he tries to help them. Maybe you notice this. Um, in this passage, he says to the poor, rejoice in your high status in Christ. Basically, don't be defined by what you don't have, but be defined by who you are in Christ. But then also, he says to the rich person, boast in your humiliation. Do you notice what he said? You're gonna, the, the rich person will fade away in his or her pursuits. Now, James is not anti-wealth. He's not saying you can't have money. Here's what James is teaching us. Listen to this. Both, both poverty and riches, having no, money and ha having no money and having lots of money, both of those realities bring enormous pressure on you to focus on the world instead of Christ. Both having no money and having a lot of money, they put a lot of pressure on people a lot of temptation, a lot of desire to focus on the world instead of Christ. So in this example, and we'll, we'll get to our third point, if what you love most is money or material possessions or the significance and security that those things seem to bring to you, if your deepest allegiance is to money and wealth and material possessions and you find your identity in those things, then listen, where do you turn when trials take those things from you? Where do you go? You can't find joy. You can't even find a reason to keep living. Here's the point. We cannot endure trials well when they steal from us what we love most. When the trials of your life take your health from you, and your health is what you love most, nothing wrong with health, but you love your health more than you trust God, 
you'll lose your joy. When the trials of life take a job from you, and what you loved most was your title, and your corner office, and your influence, and your paycheck, you can't look through it. It just can't be done. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying, look through your sorrows and your suffering and your circumstances and your trials to joy. But at the same time, James says, you'll never do it. You can't do it. And here's why. Because we're double-minded. We're split in our hearts. What do we need? We need a new identity. We're not a victim. We're not the vindicator. We're none of the things that we pursue. So how can we do it? Last question. What is James asking us to do? Endure trials without losing your joy. Why don't we do it? Because we love things more than God. How do we do it? He gives us the answer. I hope you're, I'm sure you're glad of that. We need a new identity, and where do we find it? Verse 17, here's what James says. We'll finish by looking at this verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's what James is pointing out. Everything else in your life can be taken away by a trial, but the Father, there's no variation, there's no shadow. He does not change. Of his own, of his own, of his will, not our will, of God's will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James finishes this passage by causing us to look up and say every good gift and every perfect gift comes from, a, from above. Well, what gift was more good and more perfect than the Son of God? And James is pointing our hearts to Jesus, saying with Jesus, what you get is a new identity, a new identity. Not just a fresh start, not just a clean slate. See, sometimes we think of the gospel very narrow. We think the gospel is Jesus forgives me of my sins. I got a clean slate. Now it's up to me to fill up my clean slate with my good works. It's not the gospel. Sometimes we think the gospel is, well, Jesus did his part. Now I do my part. Listen, in the, in the New Testament letters, you know what phrase is used to describe Christians the most? It's not, it's not Christian. It's not believer. It's not saint. It's not follower. It's not even disciple. It's the short phrase, in Christ. In Christ. That if you believe in him and you trust in him, what it means is you have a new identity. You are hidden in Christ. And when you feel like you're the victim of your trials, look at the cross where Jesus, the only true victim, the only good person who ever had something truly bad happen to them. Jesus Christ was victimized in our place. And he became a victim that we should have been. But he didn't remain a victim, did he? Because three days later, he rose from the grave where he became a victor over sin and over hell and over death and over Satan. And someday he will sit on his throne and he will vindicate us and vindicate all things and make all things right. So here's what we have in Jesus, the good and perfect gift that came from above. We have someone who was a victim in our place, who was a victor in our place, and someday he will make all things right, all things new, and he will vindicate things. And here's what it means. You don't have to be a victim your whole life because Jesus took your place. But you also don't have to try and be a vindicator and make things right and take justice into your own hands because Jesus is the faithful judge who sees all and who is perfectly just and will hold everybody accountable someday. Every evil, wicked system in our government in this world will be torn down someday and held accountable before the very presence of a holy God. And if that's true, you're free of the weight of being a victim, which is a heavy weight, and you're free of the weight of making the world fair again, which is, I think is a heavier weight. We have a new identity. We are in Christ. And let me finish with this. James knows this, and here's how he knows it. 
Verse 1, first thing I read. How does James describe himself? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know who else James was? James was the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. His mom and dad were Mary and Joseph. James grew up with Jesus. In fact, all the indicators from the Gospels is that James did not believe in Jesus when Jesus was alive. But James saw the resurrected Jesus. And he placed his faith and trust in him. And he was there on the day of Pentecost. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but if I grew up and Jesus was my brother, and I went into a mixer or a social gathering or was writing a letter or creating a Facebook profile, pretty sure I would lead with that. (laughs) Hey, I'm James, brother of Jesus, savior of the world, died for your sins. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm James. I was in the womb of Mary, that saint, that wonderful woman of God. I'm, I'm I'm her son. How does James, the one letter we have of James, how does he identify himself? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may like your siblings, but you don't want to call them your Lord. You don't want to call them your master. But James knew. He knew because he saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And seeing Jesus helps us see ourselves. And, and I'll say this and I'll pray. It helps us see that we're servants. Now, we're all, we're all servants to something. But in Jesus, we're servants of the one good master. And if you're a servant, here's what it means. You don't exist for your own purposes. You don't live for your own glory. We exist for his glory. We exist for his purposes. And if that's true, then we can endure any trial and we can find our joy in them. Let's pray together this morning.